for the One Hood Power Hour. I am your co-host, Kahari Mosley, here with Miracle Jones. And we're very excited uh, for the next hour. We'll be delving deep into local, state, and national politics, uh, as well as taking a very, very deep dive into the special elections that will happen in the greater Pittsburgh area, in the 19th legislative district vacated by Jake Wheatley, and in the 24th legislative district vacated uh, by Egg Ganey. And we're very excited in, in a few minutes after we get into our headlines, and we'll be bringing on an all-star panel um, to talk about uh, those elections and other political news. So we're very excited once again, be joined by Chris Potter from WESA, Ryan Dito from the Tribune Review, and David Dix from Luminous Strategies based in Harrisburg uh, to talk about those elections. But before we get to that, and before we get to our all-star panels, so much to talk about. And I guess the first thing that I'll start off with, uh, Miracle, is uh, one thing that has really, you know, really reverberated throughout the political world is the censuring of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, the two two members of the bipartisan January 6th commission, but the two, the sole two, well, not sole, but the two Republican members of that committee. And there's been a lot of Republicans that have come out even you know, uh, Mike Pence, who's been very quiet, you know, came out over the weekend, you know, with some statements that have been, you know, much stronger than before. You know, I won't necessarily say they were strong statements, but they were much stronger than the statements that, that he's made before. So what do you, you make of all of the hullabaloo this weekend over the RNC censure and, and, and now what looks like Republican infighting? I think that there is a really serious conversation about what the next two years are going to look like and how people are going to be able to choose whether or not they want to run as candidates or if they want to align, not necessarily with a political party in the GOP or the Republicans or, or more with Trump. And what we're seeing is a lot of uh, people say, you know what, we're going to align instead of with the party with this individual and there is not necessarily uh, fighting, but you see people basically trying to say it's going to be this us or them type situation because we know that uh, these elections are coming up. More people are registering to vote. A lot of people have been motivated to come out and, and vote more than ever before because they're seeing that when some people take office, a lot of personal rights and liberties are being restricted. So there is a groundswell of movement happening. Um, and in order to keep people really um, on the conservative side, people are saying we're going to, it's either Trump or bust. And uh, for Cheney and other folks to sit there and say, hey, we do not want to become the party of actual physical violence and actual physical rioting and aggression against police and elected officials. We need to take a step back while there is a other fraction of the party saying, you know what, January 6th and what's going on in Ottawa and these different places is just legitimate political discourse. People are going to attack, you know, uh, institutions. They're going to take over cities. And that's just how we're going to expand the conservative agenda. It's going to be very thing to see how people are responding because, like I said, Pence came out and said, look, I can't change the constitution. You know, you had Mitt Romney come out and say, you know, Cheney was right when she uh, said that on January 6th was wrong. You see some people making these statements, but you really don't see that 
parlaying into a split of votes, right? So um, even though there is a conversation around January 6th, none of the Republican centers voted for the Voting Rights Act. None of the Republican centers voted for, you know, the Build Back Better plan. So even though they're having a conversation around January 6th, are all still in line when it comes to voting. And so it's not necessarily in fighting per se that's going to lead to any changes in policy. It's just this really debate about how to deal with physical violence within the party. Yeah, and staying on the RNC and taking a quick turn locally, Pittsburgh is no longer in the running for uh, the Republican National Convention in 2024. And actually, Ryan Dito, who's be joining us shortly, did, did a story in the Tribune uh, review about it as well. But, you know, it was a lot of conversation, you know, locally, a lot of condemnation locally as well about the decision of uh, Visit Pittsburgh to move forward with a bid. But one of the things that did come out is there was a a hospitality situation in Salt Lake City, I believe, at at the National RNC gathering. And Pittsburgh was the one city that did not send a delegation or do a hospitality room to kind of make even more of of a pitch. So I think that kind of sent the signal as well as it was known that the RNC was reading news articles and kind of testing the waters and seeing, you know, which cities seem to have the highest level of enthusiasm. And it didn't appear that Pittsburgh, you know, had a unified enthusiasm to host the RNC. So I'm sure they read the tea leaves like everyone else did. You know, correct. And for full transparency, um, I was a part of a group of community organizers that met with the mayor's office as well as visit Pittsburgh about um, what this meant and impact for the city safety-wise, uh, community-wise, and advertisement-wise. There was a lot of concerns about people to the city to cause chaos and disruption just because we see, again, I'll keep referencing what's going on in Ottawa. We don't have the capacity to respond to a, a violent takeover of our city. And if people are going to say that taking over government buildings, assaulting officers assaulting citizens is going to be a normal uh, form of discourse. What does that mean for the communities and residents, uh, particularly uh, Black and Brown people who live and work in the city, um, who have to come to the city to work in the restaurants and retail and in these arts and culture uh, jobs? What does it mean for like their safety uh, for an organization to come into the city and, and, and with these violent narratives? And so it is really see that the RNC right now is not coming to Pittsburgh, but it is very telling that people are paying attention to Pittsburgh as we know that it is going to be a billion dollar race and Pennsylvania is a swing state. So we know it's going to be more people coming into the city, more people engaging us. And so it's gonna be very important um, that all of the, the political groups and affiliations really have an understanding of, of how people are in the city what ideology they're bringing, and if they're going to come to make sure that they are not coming with a mindset to attack uh, people here. So yes, a lot of people were uh, relieved to see the RNC um, wasn't coming to Pittsburgh, but there's no ongoing conversations about people coming here, because we know the candidates are going to be holding rallies here in Pittsburgh. We know that all of the political groups whether affiliated or not, are going to be holding rallies here in Pittsburgh. So what does it mean and how is our city uh, planning uh, uh, to allow people to gauge in First Amendment protests? 
um, and First Amendment speech uh, uh, um, without causing uh, violence in the city. So this is as right now, um, 2024, not be the host of the convention here in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and, and moving from uh, national politics to state politics, we see that Val Arcouche, county commissioner from the Philadelphia area, I believe, a Montgomery County uh, commissioner, has pulled out of the U.S. Senate race. So now it, it, it appears to be a three-person race, John Fetterman, Malcolm Kenyatta, and, and Connor Lamb. So, you know, as we are now in the true political season, we'll start to see, you know, things really open up and, 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 and these fields start to take shape in a way that they didn't in 2021. Like super stressed out, but I'm really starting to like following the Pennsylvania um, elections because you're starting that Pennsylvania, but what their messaging is, how they're, what towns they're visiting, um, what slogans that they're using. Again, we know as we get to the actual um, election date, more people will you know, stop their campaigns. It's the 15th, I believe, is the day that people will start uh, requesting ballot signatures. And so you're going to see really who is going to still be here um, in a couple of weeks because if people don't get those signatures, it doesn't matter what they've done up until now, they won't be able to be on the ballot. So we'll see a lot more people uh, drop off in the coming weeks. But I think that it's great to have competitive primaries. And with that, over the weekend, the Pennsylvania GOP actually said they will not be endorsing people um, this primary season. They're really going to let the voters decide uh, what their Pennsylvania um, uh, ballot looks like. There's been different people are saying that Pennsylvania Republicans do not want to upset Trump by going against uh, some of the people he's endorsed. Other people have said that to you know make sure that they have all the money that they can ready to go for the general. And some have also said it's just um, right now uh, more feasible to all of these candidates to run the races and determine the future of the party. And so that is going to be really um, in juxtaposition to the DNC, DNC was able to endorse the whole entire state um, outside of the Senate uh, race. So again, in this state, like for the first time in a long time, really competitive. Uh, primaries, and we're also going to have a really competitive general election for all of these Commonwealth cases, um, I mean, positions. So I am finding it fascinating um, but that this is not going to be a traditional, um, in April, we'll know in May who the candidates are. They're going to have to do work up until the general election in November. Absolutely. And, uh, and with that uh, breakdown of, of the latest in, in, in statewide political news, I think it's perfect timing to bring on our all-star panel tonight. We are so um, excited to have Ryan Dito of the Pittsburgh uh, Tribune Review, uh, David Dix of Luminous Strategies, and Chris Potter from WESAFM. Welcome be here. to the Power Hour. Hey, everyone. Yeah, good to be with you all. Yeah, thank, thank you so much uh, for, for, for joining us this evening. Uh, and as we were, you know, preparing to come on over the last half an hour, you know, before we wanted to jump into the 19th and 24th Legislative District, there is other political news that, that, that we should cover. So, you know, starting, starting with you, Chris, you talk about, you know, a major decision that, that happened in the Supreme Court. Yeah, so the Supreme Court uh, this afternoon basically um, reversed a lower court 
that it said the state of Alabama would have required the state of Alabama um, to redraw its own congressional redistricting map um, to include uh, two majority black districts. Right now, there's only one out of the, um, I think it's seven uh, congressional districts in, in Alabama. And the lower court had said, look, you know, the, the, the case law here is, is pretty well established. You can, without too much trouble, draw a second district um, that has a majority black population. And this is a state where the black population has been increasing while the white population decreases. And if you don't do it, you have a lack of representation for um, for black residents of that state. The Supreme Court today, by a 5-4 rule, um, all of your hardline conservatives on the one side and uh, John Roberts siding um, with the more liberal faction, said, you know what, uh, we're just going to put a hold on that. Uh, we're going to let the case develop. Uh, we'll hear arguments and all that stuff, but we are not going to uh, weigh in on these lines prior to the 2022 uh, election. So those lines as drawn, um, which is essentially a one Democrat friendly district in that state, um, they will be in effect um, through 2022 at least. And then who knows how long afterwards, based on how quickly the, the courts move. You know, the, the, the majority said, you know, we're not... We're not saying this is. We're not saying that this map is a good map. We're not saying that it doesn't have problems. But we're saying let's let the process play out. Um, it's sort of the voting equivalent to what they've been doing with choice issues in Texas. You know, we're gonna we're gonna let this sort of uh, this very draconian uh, law uh, about abortion stand in Texas while the case works the way through the system. And meanwhile, of course, you've got women in difficult circumstances in Texas, like right now. Um. So it's a sort of procedural thing that sort of leaves a status quo in place um, for at least this election cycle. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't venture even to guess how much longer after. Yeah. And, it, and, and you know, it really has, um, you know, it, obviously it has immediate implications in Alabama, but now a, a lot of legal scholars are thinking the, the same thing might happen in Louisiana and some of these other Southern states that have, uh, you know, very large black populations. And we're also looking to have that same, um, you know, ruling where you basically kind of get rid of racial gerrymandering so that you can have two or more black majority districts uh, in these states. Um, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty bleak in terms of that um, standpoint uh, and and how that will move forward through those southern. The irony here too is that that, that Roberts, who uh, some of the older heads out there may recall, Roberts joined a majority in the Shelby versus Holder decision about six or seven years ago, which basically kind of opened the door for this ruling um, by basically saying parts of the Voting Rights Act were unconstitutional. And a big part of Roberts's argument in particular was, hey, it's not the old South anymore. Things have changed in the South. Um, and folks will remember too that this is, this is the, uh, the the decision where um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg says, that's like saying that, you know, I'm standing under the umbrella and I'm dry, therefore I don't need umbrellas, right? When it's raining. Um, and I mean, I think historically you could kind of see that like, you know, maybe not as much as changed as, as Judge Roberts uh, would have had us and himself believe several years ago in, the, in that he is now siding with a, a more liberal majority here in an effort or minor, minority, I should say, um, to try and protect um, this map and this lower court decision, which by all accounts was, um, you know, well within the well within the laws as, as had been written and as it existed until, you know, two o'clock this afternoon. So it is, um, it is uh, remarkable. And uh, I think for a lot of folks disturbing um, to see how quickly um, once that door got opened, um, states have been willing, especially as Ryan says in the South to, 
to, to, to run through it. I think if there's any bright spot when you look at the landscape in regard to these rulings, it's that you know, African-Americans are winning in districts that are not majority minority. Uh, and as we're looking at the expansion of the members of the Congressional Black Caucus, many of those members are coming from districts that are no longer majority minority. You can look at far left progressives like uh, Representative Cori Bush, uh, who does not represent a majority black district, or you could look at uh, Congressional Black Caucus Chair Joyce Beatty, who has a district that might be 30% African-American and 70% white. So Af African-American leaders are finding ways to kind of break into these districts that don't have to necessarily be packed for a majority minority district, uh, but because of their ideas, their principles, and what they espouse are able to win districts that, quote unquote, in, in, a, in a time past would have been considered unwinnable. That's encouraging and certainly should be looked at as a bright spot. Yeah, and that's and and you know, there's a big chance that happens in Pittsburgh this cycle too, because you have two black candidates who are um, running for you know Congress here that you know especially um, look pretty strong. So um, yeah, I think I I would I would say that's a very strong possibility. And out here. east, when you look at Philadelphia, I mean, there may be a challenge for the newly uh, newly drawn Brendan Boyle district uh, okay. by a very leading state senator uh, who has a lot of political heft, uh, and that could be a district that, again represented by a white congressman that could be very shortly represented by an African-American. That's the progress. That's the, that's the bright spot in all this. And that's so talking about winnable districts. There are David, winnable I'm districts going to come there. to you. Um, can we give us a little bit of an update and around, uh, and if you will, about what's going on with the maps uh, here in Pennsylvania, you talked about some of the new competitors, you know, that there has been ongoing conversations about what the maps are going to look like. The Supreme Court is hearing some, uh, you know, arguments later on this week. Can you just talk about the state of our maps right now in the Commonwealth? Yeah, I think for the first time in a very long, long time, or at least in my memory, you had a uh, a redistricting commission that was at least kind of working under one cohesive leadership in the form of Chairman Mark. Uh, I think that while the Republicans who serve in leadership and were represented on that commission and the Democrats who served on that commission and represented on that commission may have different points of view and obviously a uh, different agenda when it comes to what they want the district maps to look like. They were able to find a great bit of consensus, much to the ire of many of their members, both in the Republican and Democratic side. I think for the first time, again, you have a level of cooperation uh, that's going to make it really difficult to kind of turn away these maps and see them as unreasonable. Uh, yeah, essentially, you know, on, on the congressional map, certainly sign off from everybody. On the state house and Senate maps, a little bit of jockeying, depending on what what uh, what uh, part of the legislator that re that leader represented and how it kind of affected uh, their their ability to either retain the majorities or work or break into the majority. Uh, but ultimately, again, under the leadership of Mark Norenberg, you have maps that are going to be seen as kind of consensus and, and and well thought out. They're obviously going to be pushed off to the um, to the to the state supreme court and they'll have their opportunity to review them but that that court uh if you look at their precedents that they've set in the past you know won't probably kick those out either right so i think it ultimately probably may have a may 17th primary with uh maps being kind of approved and ready for for that election day and the doom and gloom that we initially hoped at least I, or i initially kind of thought may happen in terms of pushing the election back into June or even later, I don't, I think we may have avoided that as a state. And again, I might, uh, I, I'm a little less sanguine, especially about that state house map uh, being resolved. Uh, the majority leader there, Kerry Benninghoff was pretty, um, has been throughout the process. Um, and even up until the vote on Friday, pretty caustic um, about the map. If you, um, 
you know, there's a pretty clear thread of, uh, as David says, a, a state uh, court challenge. Um, some of his remarks, too, suggested that they might go with a federal challenge as well, alleging sort of due process stuff and things like that. So, you know, where that goes, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think it's definitely true that um, the the state Supreme Court is unlikely to weigh in. And, and we'll see. I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a different question when you're kind of talking about a state legislature. Sometimes the federal courts are a little less um, anxious to weigh in on weigh in on some of those races. But, you know, if you if you raise that issue in a federal court they're you know, they're going to hear it out. So, you know, I, I definitely think, you know, this the state Senate side. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely a fairly consensus driven uh, thing there. And Kim Ward, uh, the Senate Republican, voted in favor of both maps. Although she made it clear that if she could have voted on the House one separately, she would have voted no on it. It wouldn't have made a difference. But, you know, so I, w- we'll see how that goes forward. And, and you know, I, at the end of the day, David's quite right, I think. It's just, you know, we end up with the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court, um, really kind of in the calling the shots on all of these things um, and, seeing, and seeing where it lands. My expectation, given the state Supreme Court, is that they they would then approve the maps, right? They won't yeah. see anything untoward I will agree with the maps. That. And yeah. again, to the timeline point, there was a, a huge fear and you know a lot of speculation around whether or not this primary can be pushed back. And as much money as folks are spending to get elected to these offices, how they protract those budgets and make can kind of make those longer uh, primaries work was something that was of concern to a lot of folks. Although the TV news guys were excited. Hey, Ron, did you have a, another point you wanted? To- uh, no, just that. Uh, yeah, we we don't know what the fe- you know if they get a federal challenge. That's really the biggest thing I think. You know, I agree with David that if you know courts and you know just for the state supreme court. It's just going to, yeah, it, we're probably going to just see that, that, that actually hitting that, you know, deadline that we all kind of want to see with like, you know, with a May primary, but if the feds get involved and they delay it or, or anything like that, and we can't really predict what's going to happen, especially what happened within um, Alabama, then, then, uh, you know, I'd do something else. It's, uh, it's really unpredictable, but you know, last time uh, there was, um there was a state uh, level, um, kind of issue that the federal courts took up with uh senator brewster's race um you know this that federal judge basically said you know nope it's a state issue the state supreme court has already ruled in they have precedent i'm not going to touch that so if it's that same judge which was like the you know same judge here in western pennsylvania um then yeah hopefully it will he'll 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 same the same president uh but if not uh then then yeah, and staying uh, on just the issue of, of maps, you know, before we jump into the 19th and 24th legislative districts, uh, Commonwealth Court Judge McCullough um, did rule in favor of uh, the, the, the congressional maps, whereas we have a very strange process that we talked about a few episodes ago where a legislative redistricting commission chooses the legislative maps and then the actual legislature chooses the congressional map. So now we're at this part, we're at that other kind of a process. And, um, and at least for now, um, the Commonwealth Court, the special master as was appointed by the Supreme Court has chosen to go with um, the Republican version of, of the maps. I guess we could start with, with Dave and then go, go Chris. Yeah, I mean, the process is certainly uh, cumbersome, if you will, uh, and that initial selection of the Republican version of the maps kind of makes it even, again, a more protracted process. Um, but this is something that ultimately, you know, it's going to have to find consensus sooner or later. I don't think we'll have another example where we are going multiple cycles with maps still in uh, in, in in limbo. Um, but you know, 
how it's going to actually come come fully together is 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 a little bit above my pay grade. Yeah, I just in a way it's not too surprising. This is uh, this is a Commonwealth Court judge, uh, Patricia McAuliffe, who's um kind of uh, has has made some rulings that have raised eyebrows in the past. She was one of the very few judges anywhere in the country um, to uphold, uh, at least in a preliminary sort of way, um, Donald Trump's uh, challenges uh, to uh, Pennsylvania um, election law in this case, of course. Um, you know, I mean, her argument seems to be, and I haven't gone through it, it's it's it's, it's lengthy. Um, her argument seems to be that um, because the legislature, which is Republican controlled, passed this map, it's the, it's, it's the closest thing we have to the sort of voice of the, um, and I mean, I, you know, it's a really dubious proposition, uh, just as a matter of common sense. Yes. Republicans do control both houses of the legislature, but the Democrat who was elected is a, is a governor is the Democrat. So, you know, it's, it's hard to sort of say like, you know, we, we created these branches and we all remember like ninth grade civics class to be sort of, you know, equal um, and, you know, sort of co co-equal branches of government. So, how you sort of get to a place of, of of putting one above the other when only one of these folks is actually elected by the entire um, state? Um, you know, Democrats are obviously going to argue that, and and there's really nothing that says, um, you know, that that the Supreme Court has to has to give any credence to that opinion. So so we will see. Um, you know, but it it is certainly for the Republicans who who push that map. You know, this is going to be a talking point for them. You know, it was a map sort of uh, a, a sort of amended version of, of one promoted by Amanda Holt, um, who, you know, a name people know from previous challenges of earlier gerrymanders. And so, you know, there's some credibility there that attaches to it. But, um, you know, fundamentally, uh, Republicans didn't like the map that we have now on um, the map that uh, reversed the longstanding Republican edge and ended up with a congressional delegation whose partisan, you know, skew is about equal, which is kind of where uh, you, you would sort of expect from a purple state. Um, so we'll see. I mean, there's there's nothing that says they have to. There's nothing that says they have to, um, you know, take that opinion and do anything with it. But it's certainly a talking point for the GOP. Yeah, it. it I, think I tweeted today like a, a little photo of like a cartoon drawing. I, I was talking with Chris about this too the other day, where basically are just going all the way. Like it started with the Supreme Court when they did that ruling, basically, to kind of end partisan gerrymandering. And now that we started to draw the map again, we go through all the process. That's like this long, arduous, like going through getting all these maps. So many maps. There's been so many maps, guys. I mean, I love maps, but like it's too many maps, you know, and we get all through at it. And it, I, you know, it's coming right back to the Supreme Court. And I, it just feels like that, like Commonwealth Court decision was just part of that process. Like, well, we're going to let Commonwealth court do this thing. But I think I, I would, I would guess ultimately that's all come going to come back to the Supreme court and they're going to draw the maps. And, and before we go to miracle, I do want to just take a second to thank our ASL interpreters, Cameron and Kat, uh, who are holding down tonight. Thank you so much for your great work and back to you, miracle. Okay. So now that we have the, the process of the maps, you know, we have a couple of special elections going on um, in Pennsylvania. So we get to have a precursor to the election than the actual uh, primary. So a reminder for those on the 19th and 24th, you vote in April and you vote in May. So um, a little month in between. What, um, I'm going to start with you, Chris, then come to you, Ryan, then you, David. What do we have to look um, forward to in the special election? What is the processes by what by which these special elections um are run? Because a little bit different, right? So first of all, the, the, both of these elections in the nineteenth and the twenty fourth, and these are to replace Ed Ganey and uh, Jake Wheatley, the mayor of Pittsburgh and his chief of staff. 
Um, they're both being held April 5th. And although we've been talking about redistricting a lot here, both of these special elections will be according to the current lines because they're filling out the terms for these guys. So if you were in the 19th district, if you voted for Ed Ganey in 2020, you'll be voting in that race. Or if you voted for Jake Wheatley or anybody else in that race, you'll, you are eligible to vote in these elections. Um, essentially what happens is um, unlike a regular uh, kind of full bore election, um, and especially it's important that the Democratic Party, there's no primary in this thing. You kind of get one election, you go with it. And so the parties, to the extent that they want to field a candidate to sort of have the party, you know, label and letter by their name, um, the committee people choose them. And the Democrats this weekend um, chose uh, Martel Covington to be their nominee um, to replace Ed Ganey in District 24. Um, nice event. Uh, Ryan and I were both there. It was great to have some company for a change <laughs> from the press. Usually I'm all by myself. Um, but at any rate, um, so he he won uh, handily. Uh, I think he had about 40 votes. Ryan, yeah, correct 40, me if I'm right. misremembering that. Uh, and the next place finisher was Latasha Mays, a longtime uh, activist and advocate in the community. I think she had about 24, 26, something like that. Yep. So um, he was the front runner going in. I think a lot of people expect him to win, and he did. Um, there will be a similar process uh, for the Jake Wheatley seat. That's District 19. Um, today, this afternoon, was actually the deadline for candidates who wanted to be uh, the nominees in that race on the Democratic side. Only two filed. There were six who went for the Ganey seat. Only two did. Um, and they are the people who we've always kind of known were going to be running. Arian Abney, who's challenged uh, Mr. Wheatley for that seat before. And uh, Glenn Grayson, a, a prominent uh, faith leader um, in the Hill District. So they'll be vying for the Democratic nomination, uh, I think, Thursday, right? That's the 10th, I think. Um so they'll be vying for that, and then we'll kind of see how that process goes. And then anybody else who wants to jump in the race, uh, you know, that you can go and petition and do things like that to to be added to the ballot. But right now, I I, I don't know that there's another candidate who's declared for the special election in either of those races. Um, so you know, the, the special election may not be quite as juicy as the full blown primary that will be with the new um with, that will be new with the new district lines, and that'll be that'll be a lot of fun for all involved. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of weird because of these special elections that happen and how you fill these seats that it really is these Democratic nominating conventions that that are like kind of de facto the elections because you're not likely to see, you know, another candidate. And even if you are, they're going to be an independent uh, or Republican. The Republicans aren't nominating anyone for the uh, 24th seat. I don't think they're going to nominate anyone for the 19th seat. Um, and so uh, it's basically just going to um you know, Martel um, is going to be on the ballot for the 24th and then whoever wins this time, you know, Dem nominating session for the 19th. And those two candidates are very, very extremely likely to just fill out the rest of that seat. You know, if you want a real election, you just got to wait another another uh, month and you get your real primary. And basically every candidate for the uh, District 24, um, I think five out of the six because of the lines, uh, one of them isn't in the new one, but five out of the six that ran the Dem nominating convention say that they want to run in the, uh, you know, primary. So uh, voters of that district, instead of just the, you know, nominating committee, will have a say, but it won't be until that, uh, you know. Yeah, I think where, where it comes into play most actively, uh, the new district lines in the, in the May primary are, is in the case uh, of the 19th, where uh, significant portions of the Hill would be kind of re-gerrymandered to another district. Uh, and that's obviously a, a base of support for uh, Reverend Grayson. So depending on whom, you know, as uh, I think Ryan just alluded to, depending on whom wins that that nominating uh, committee uh, endorsement uh, next week, it's going to have a lot to do with who wins the, 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 the special election. But when you come to the 
the the uh, the actual primary election in May, uh, it's going to be a lot more complicated depending on you know, what those official lines are and whose kind of base of support uh, is fully included. That's an interesting point. Um, you know, in the preliminary map, you know, it did not appear that Glenn Grayson was in the 19th legislative right, district. Wasn't. But then when the map came out on Friday, I looked, and that was the first thing I actually looked for was to see how far into the hill the new 19th went. And sure enough, Crawford <laughs> Square, just deep enough, that 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 Reverend Grayson, you know, you know, was able to get in, and I don't know if some of y'all saw. I don't know if it was a Facebook post or Instagram post that Jake Wheatley had posted with a meme from uh, from uh, from Minister Society for the, the Bill Duke, like you know, you effed up. Um, you can't put any intent in that post. No correlation. I, I, I think it's it's important to point out that that came out after the new maps that included Reverend Grayson, that included portions of the Hill. So you know, if there's anything to be taken from that, it's that. Even the uh, entree to conclude portions of the hill, in his estimation, may not have gone far enough uh, in keeping that district intact and keeping the hill as a major center of the 19th district. So I think there, yeah, it might be comical, but there's something really to, to kind of feel back and understand there in the sense that this is after the fact that they already included portions of the hill where it was already discounted out. So now that they've included portions of the hill, you're, you have folks on the hill saying they haven't gone far enough. So uh, I think there's still more work to do. There, from those and there's some concern too from people in the 24th as well, which is, you know, like we are sort of used to, you know, Homewood being kind of the, the center of our center of gravity out here, sort of more in the eastern part of the city and some of those surrounding areas. And now it's sort of like, now we've kind of got a lot of this other power base as well. And we're going to have to kind of figure out how, how all of that looks. So, yeah, I mean, even even for, from the 24th, it's not like, it's not like they necessarily feel they came out ahead in all of this, right? Like it's it's definitely a, a front thing. I will say I talked to uh, I talked to Reverend Grayson earlier, and I just said because I wanted to make sure. Like I was like, "You're in the new district, right?" And he said something, you know, like, "Yes, you know, by the by the grace of Jesus" or something like that. He was kind of kidding, and I was like, "You know, save some room for you know Jake Wheatley or whoever in your prayers too, because you know that could have gone a different way for you." Um, but yeah, it was it was it's 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 fascinating how that has played out and what that means, and of course. We've talked about this on the show before. The, the tricky thing is, is that the way, you know, the demographic trend here that Pittsburgh's black population has been shrinking, it's been moving outside the city. And even within the city, it's sort of been dispersing itself in sort of a different way. And you could just, I mean, like that 19th district, if you just like took a time lapse thing over the course of the past few decades, it would just look like some sort of crazy, you know, I don't even know what pinata sort of going up or something. Um and it's it it is it is a challenge, um, and it'll be fascinating to see how it plays out this spring. Well, those yeah, it's important to recognize that since we're taking the timeline, that those neighborhoods were created by redlining and government practices, and they were decentralized by a lack of investment and a lack of access to quality, low affordable uh, home homes. Right, so it's like yeah, people are going out into the suburbs to find homes that they can afford, and that's had a, a demonstrative effect on the on the black population of Pittsburgh, but. We should feel it as a demonstrative effect on all of Pittsburgh, right? I think that's important. I was on another program a few weeks ago uh, where, where Chairman Mark Norberg was on, and he was alluding to just talking to uh, or setting up a call uh, with uh, Chief of Staff Wheatley like just, just after that. So I, 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 I prodded him a bit to say, I know that conversation can be pretty intense given you know the, the, the initial map that they had presented, presented out there without the Hill District included. And I'm, I'm, I know for a fact that given that last exchange, that there's been any number of conversations between uh, stakeholders here in Pittsburgh and that leadership of the, of the district. 
Yeah, th thank you for that. Um, and then let's, uh, you know, jump back into, uh, you know, Sunday. You know, we talked a little bit about, you know, kind of just the nuts and bolts of, of, of how we, you know, um, got to this process. And I know there was one candidate that participated in a uh, in a forum, um, and there was there's a story in, in, in the city paper. Um, so um, at least it appears that there's maybe seven up to seven, uh, you know, candidates: uh, William Anderson, Lamar uh, Blackwell, uh, Delia Chatterfield, uh, Martel Covington, um, Randall Taylor, Latasha Mays, who we mentioned before, and Natisha Washington, uh, would be the seven candidates. Um, that at least have announced some intention. Now, you know, we're still a long way um, to April 5th and, you know, that, that, you know, that could change, but just it for, for the, uh, you know, for the fairness doctrine <laughs> to make sure we give everybody, you know, equal time. Um, but, but, um, but, but Ryan and Chris talk a little bit about, you know, um, besides the final results, you know, what were your impression? Cause Chris, you know, we talk, I was there, I, I voted, I am going to, you know, respect the sanctity of the, of the secret ballot. I'm not going to reveal who I voted for <laughs> as a Democratic committee man, uh, but uh, full disclosure, I am a Democratic committee man in the old 24th. I will be joining, if I am elected this spring, the, the 34th district uh, that's represented by Summer Lee currently, um, you know, due to some of the redistricting that we talked about. But Chris, one thing that we talked about um, before they really started to count the votes, you know, was that by and large, you know, this is one of the deepest, you know, most impressive, you know, fields of candidates that, that, that we've seen. Yeah. I mean, I, several people said that to me, just that they were really impressed. These are, I mean, these are several, there were some familiar names, right? I mean, Randall Taylor, school board member has run for, um, you know, a couple of posts in the past is well known to folks. Um, but there were, there were a few people and you mentioned a couple of them, Lamar Blackwell, and just Washington, Mart Martel Covington himself, first time candidates really. And yet, um, you know, I spoke to not all of them before Saturday, but, but several of them. And I mean, these aren't, these aren't folks who just like woke up one morning and said, I'm going to drop a thousand bucks on a filing fee and decide to run to see if I can get the Democratic nod. They, they have been invested in, in their neighborhoods and their communities for a long time. So, you know, I, even, you know, even when I was talking to some of uh, Mr. Covington's team, you know, they just kind of said, we'll be seeing these people again, like in other races. Um, you know, it's very likely, you know, as Ryan mentioned, uh, Ms. Washington uh, will not be able to run for the full, two-year right. term because she's a Wilkinsburg resident and the new district won't include Wilkinsburg. Um, but, you know, she here's somebody who's made it very clear that should Summer Lee win her um, congressional seat and that seat becomes vacant, the 34th, um, that she'd be in the running again. Maybe Ashley Comins, who who had been a candidate at one point for this race and withdrew um, because of those map concerns, she may also be back in. So it's been, I mean, I just have to say, like, and not just in this particular race, but in a bunch of them, I could not imagine 10, 15 years ago, the the sort of depth um, of talent, the number of candidates coming out just because we've been because Pittsburgh and the and the southwestern Pennsylvania has been so terrible, you know, at sort of encouraging this stuff. And it's whether it's you know, I think it's partly the summer leaf phenomena, the partly, you know, just just a lot of a lot of folks are looking and seeing like you can run and make it. David made this point earlier, like even in districts that you don't think of as, you know, the black district or whatever, you can run and win um, in this, in this environment. And people are taking that. And it is, it was fascinating to watch um, and, and to see folks who, again, I did not know five years ago. Um, probably because they were like still in high school. <laughs> I feel old is what I'm trying to say. I'm not used to this in my life where like I'm older than the candidates. It was never supposed to get to this point, but it is older. Yes. Thank older. you. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. Yeah. I, I, I think the candidates were extremely impressive. I mean, 
they 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 didn't seem like first time candidates you know and i spoke with most of them and and they were polished they were ready they were ambitious they they all had different kind of uh ties of the community that they really wanted to um you know play up and and so they were experienced too it wasn't just like oh well i can do this you know and like oh i got a thousand bucks like chris said and like, oh, you know who knows right no like they were serious and so um, yeah, I, I definitely expect to see them moving forward. And then with different lines that are coming out too, they could be in different districts. Um, and so, um, it was, it was, I, they all have campaign literature and everything like that. I mean, it was, it was legitimate. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was impressive. t-shirts, man, like just a bunch of t-shirts and his dad was there. His dad and his dad yeah, was talking him out too. And then like, like, like in a really, in a really authentic yeah, way and in a really like, he's ready to go. And yeah. he seemed like he was too. And, you know, he wasn't, he probably doesn't have the committee connections that you have, but you know, again, we're, when we talk about voting, you know, voters versus committee members, uh, then, um, we could totally see a totally different, uh, game play out, uh, you know, in the. Yeah. And then it goes back to what the one of the questions we raised at the top of the hour. We're now moving into a situation where we have competitive elections from school board all the way up into Senate. So the traditional goings on of politics has totally changed while also seeing this uh, need to have more outsiders in politics. So one, um, are you seeing some of these trends too? How is that impacting the way you're able to have access uh, to candidates um, and, and create the, you know, the, the stories that you write you know, professionally and three, what does that mean for like the future of politics um, and your professional estimate? Yeah, for me, I mean, it's great. It's great to have these candidates that are really ready to go. They want to talk to you. I remember writing some stuff early on in my time at City Paper. Uh, you'd have like county council races and like it was just some guy, you know, or actually Chris and I were talking about, you know, Joey, a uh, kind of long time Senate candidate. And you know, he's a really interesting guy, but he he doesn't really seem to have that like, like, like really, really, really like political ambition that some of these other people have. And it, it makes it, it makes it way more interesting. They're ready to talk. They're ready to spread their stories. They're ready to get out to the voters and really give a difference of like who they want to be. And I, I think it makes for better political. I'll yield to David here. Obviously he wants to jump in there. Um, I was going to say that I think the insiders are much different than they once were 10 or 15 or even 20 years ago, right? So it's like the insiders look different. They come in different packages. And I think that's why you're seeing these candidates come to the table kind of ready ready and equipped to kind of run in a way that we hadn't seen in the past. Before, if you're a younger candidate, there was really no guidance or navigation that you could get to a seat at the table. But now there are any number of avenues like one hood that will bolster you up, give you a direction, kind of give you some insider, quote unquote, uh, you know, advantage. I mean, who would have thought that one hood would be convened by the mayor to take on serious issues five years ago, right? Probably not. But now here you are in a position to kind of add that and then be an insider, an influencer in a way that the organization in its infancy wasn't established to be. So I think we, we have the Look at this always as a positive. These trends are, are are certainly positive. The election of Mayor Ganey is another footnote in that trend. The election of Summer Lee is it's certainly a, a, a strong footnote in that trend. And all of that kind of builds momentum for uh, younger candidates and, you know, quite frankly, candidates from less traditional uh, backgrounds uh, feeling empowered to be to have a seat at the table, have a voice and, you know, running with. Yeah, David makes a great point there, which is, it's not just the candidates. There's an infrastructure 
um, that exists now that didn't before. And it is, it does have something to do with the professionals who do it. I mean, and it has to do with sort of, you know, again, summer, summer Lee and the Unite pack and some of the efforts that were, I think we saw this a big, in a big way last year with the common pleas judicial races. We've talked about that before on the program where, you know, you had, in the old days, it was just sort of like if you got the Democratic Party committee endorsement, you got your name on a slate card and nobody knows what the hell they're doing when they vote for judges anyway. So, yeah, whatever. I'll do I'll do these guys. Thanks. You know, other people are out there. There are other channels now to sort of get that information. And there are channels that are more ideologically coherent. Now, you know what you're getting before you you could vote for a judge on the Democratic committee slate. and You didn't necessarily know what kind of judge you were getting. You get a judge now who's been backed by Unite PAC or something like that. And it's much clearer to you what kind of um, judicial philosophy you're supporting and, and, and on down the way up and down on, and that definitely didn't exist a few years ago. At least it hadn't surfaced to this level. And David makes a great point. You cannot, you can't separate those two things. They're both part of, of this sort of real moment of, of change here, at least in Allegheny County. And I actually, you know, I know we're the guests on the show, but I'd love to hear Kahari's perspective on this as yeah. being someone who founded and started the league of young voters back in the day, which is the first of its kind of organization to get young people engaged in the area. And now is still contributing in a mighty way with one. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I would say that, uh, yeah, it, it definitely, you know, you know, it comes full circle. You know, I think me and Chris, you know, we, we kind of always talk about that. We run into each other, you know, at these events, you know, and, you know, I was telling actually Morgan Overton was a young, you know, rising star in local democratic politics is like, I, you know, I remember you know, when I was in her shoes, you know what I mean? I remember, you know, being, you know, in my mid twenties, you know, at these events and actually, and they looked a lot different, you know, that's the other thing, you know, I mean, I think that's the, you know, I think it's just a natural, you know, kind of thing that happened, you know, in Pittsburgh, you know, you know, you know, basically like from younger baby boomers to, to basically older millennials kind of left Pittsburgh, you know, so people who right now between the ages of late thirties, you know, the early sixties, like left. So that kind of left like the older generation of baby boomers in power for 10 or 15 years longer than most other cities around the country, you know? And then now it's like, all of a sudden we see this whole revolution, but it was really just that, that backlog that was just waiting to be unplugged, you know, as the baby boomers began to more and more age out of, of public office, they were just overrepresented for an inordinate amount of years. And then that actually fell out and then all of a sudden you see you know sarah inamorado you know summer lee you see electorate emerge that could elect a, a gainey to mayor of pittsburgh which was you know would be considered you know inconceivable t- 10 years ago when he ran and won for the state house against joe preston you know what i mean like no one would have you know thought that in 10 years you know he would go from beating joe preston in a race to beating bill peduto you know that would have been inconceivable but uh, it's all you know part of you know, a, a process that that's, you know, even goes back before, you know, the stuff that we were doing, you know, with Matt Preston, you know, and, and Bill Peduto and Pat Clark, you know, all those folks, you know, in the early 2000s, it goes back to even the stuff in the late 80s that Furlough and those guys were doing, you know, so it's kind of been like this cycle, you know, and, and it's kind of, you know, over the last 40, 50 years from, you know, even, you know, as Chris knows, knows before, you know, you were writing, but, you know, when they went to the, by district city council thing. And that was part of, you know, that decision to make city council look different than it looked. And you wouldn't have, you know, the Italian seat and the Polish seat and the black seat and the very old school kind of early 20th, 20th century ethnic style politics that played. But that it took, what, 40, 50 years for the evolution to come. And now we're here, 
you know, really seeing the results. And, you know, and I remember he used to tell me that I was always a little too over enthusiastic and I wanted the change to come too fast. But now I can say that, you know, as, as a middle-aged man, I can say that it was, it was wise um, words. It was, it was wise words. It does things change, not as fast as you expect, but you know, we are definitely looking at a whole new, uh, you know, political landscape. What's nice about your timeline is it completely left out Gen Xers. I just want to say. <laughs> like, 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 hey, Chris, I mean, you are like always <laughs> just the only people at the party. You know what I mean? We're the last of the, the last of the Mohicans, man. But it was, but it always thought there would be a, you know, kind of like this transfer, you know, a baby boomer to millennial transfer of power, not like a baby boomer to Gen Xer. You know what I mean? As with so many things, we got passed over. You know, once again, you know, so. <laughs> it's, but it's really true. I mean, a state representative uh, Austin Davis um, was talking to me about this, that it's true of the, of the legislative delegation in Harrisburg, too. It's like there are a lot of the older folks and then there are a lot of people like his age, you know, uh, you know, early 30s, late 20s. Um, and there really is a sort of donut hole there demographically. And I think that might be a challenge for the region going forward, because at some point, there is something to be said for having some seniority in a sort of uh, hidebound place like Harrisburg um, because it gets you onto committees um, and to have some institutional knowledge or whatever. But it's a, it's a thing like Western Pennsylvania is going to have to negotiate because we're going to have a lot of different leaders here, Mike Doyle also leaving. Um, so, you know, we'll we'll see how that plays out. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're completely right. It's it's th that demographic hole, I think, of just people leaving in that for that 20 year period or whatever. I think it's just. It, it has downstream effects that have been part of my entire life. So I don't expect that to change either. I guess on a bright note, that's progress, yeah. right? We're <laughs> needed the curve. Yes. Now the race you know. It, it, it is true. I mean, Chris, I mean, you know, I mean, you, you know, been covering this stuff, you know, for as long as I've been, you know, uh, you know, on the other side, you know, uh, you know, of, 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 you know, of the situation. And, and, you know, me and you both remember like being in some rooms at very similar meetings like that for like city council races, you know, when, you know, in, in 2004, 2005, it would be the public works guy, and uh, you know, yeah. and so-and-so secretary and so-and-so's political office and just yeah. nice people. But like people that literally, you didn't know if there was like somebody standing behind them with a firearm, you know, making them, <laughs> you know, run, you know what I mean? But not like this group of people that we saw this weekend who were right. enthusiastic, ambitious, ready to go. But like, even like people that got elected 15, 20 years ago in Pittsburgh, we just be like, okay, let's, you know, it was all, there was a trend where it was just like your favorite public works person. I mean, that was like yeah. the best thing to get elected right. to a public office in Pittsburgh, like between yeah. 2000 and 2008. It was like yeah, that's why we had so many public work. That's why we had so many public works people because it was so hard to choose just one that was your favorite. <laughs> you know, that was the thing. And there would be people with PhDs and law degrees and stuff just getting spanked at the polls by like some public works guy, you know, and, 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 you know, and, and I don't, I don't say that to cast aspersions. And on cold and snowy days like this, we all love our public works guy. So let this not be it's a great plow. That's right. I got the experience to get the clouds. Yeah. Maybe that's why the plowing, maybe that's why the plowing is getting worse. Yeah. Is the plowing getting worse? Is that because we don't got those public works people in the office anymore? <laughs> yeah. I see our next investigative report from the Tribune Review. Shape will try to scoop it. <laughs> More public works. <laughs> I mean, maybe that is why their funding hasn't been where it's supposed to be because they're not there to 
advocate. So yes, I will look forward to seeing um, that piece. And for like this, he started on the Power Hour. But as we wrap up, we think about um, for this upcoming election season, what you're looking forward um, to seeing. We we know we have these um, special elections, the primary elections. Um, we know there's going to be a lot of outside influence coming within the Commonwealth. So what are some of the things that like you're positively like looking forward to seeing about this election? I think Pennsylvania will be the uh, ground zero for discourse and democracy. I think we have very, very exciting races happening right now. And I think you have, you have parties as you uh, enumerated at the beginning of the show, choosing different courses for how their candidates are going to be vetted, right? The Republicans this past weekend said open primary, no endorsement. We want to hear from Mehmet Oz. We want to hear from Dave McCormick. We want to hear from Carlos Sands. We want to hear from everybody and kind of come to a determination. Uh, one of the things that I think did come out pretty loud and clear over the weekend is that there's a lot of energy tacking behind former Delaware County Commissioner Dave White. And that's somebody that would give the Democrats Southeast former elected who can self-finance, who has a mechanical engineering company, which means he's hiring multiple hundreds, if not thousands of union members. Um, who could, you know, talk the talk and walk the talk uh, and hasn't really been super aligned with Trump because his his, his vantage point has been uh, more focused locally. And, you know, if the Republicans are smart enough to, to nominate a candidate like that, that's someone who would, again, give the Democrats fits. On the Democratic side, you have them doing one of two things, right? They're either going to endorse a full slated ticket in, in, the, in which they did in the case of Attorney General Josh Shapiro, and is now running mate, uh, Representative Austin Davis. But on the Senate side, they're saying, you guys got to duke it out and fight it out amongst yourselves. That resulted in an early kind of dismissal from the race from Montgomery County Commissioner Valerie Arcouche, but leaving three very, very different candidates left in the race in the form of uh, a Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who has most of the cash, but seems to be def- be just losing momentum by the minute. And then you have uh, 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 Representative Connor Lamb, who seems to be the institutional choice, both nationally and statewide. That's what got him up to the kind of the, th- the two-thirds threshold for a potential endorsement, but hasn't really been, you know, the most the most connected candidate, if you will. So there's been multiple introductions into the Philadelphia base, and he's had a difficult time kind of locking in there with grassroots folks. Yes, he's got the Philadelphia Building Trades endorsement. Yes, he's got the mayor of Philadelphia's endorsement, Jim Kenney, but I think there's going to be a lot more work to do to be able to turn that soil in the backyard of Representative Malcolm Kenyatta, who has punched way outside of his weight class. He's getting across the state. He's getting national uh, endorsements, and he's someone who's certainly going to be there throughout the length of the primary. We'll see what Valerie Arcusha's removal from the primary uh, landscape means for Malcolm Kenyatta, because I think it stands to mean the most. Yeah, it's the whole... I think in a midterm election, sometimes it doesn't feel this way. Like when there's a presidential election, you always feel like, well, this is when the parties kind of choose who they are and it defines them as an identity. This feels more like that, especially with that Senate race um, on the Democratic side. Um, On the Republican side, it's really, you know, on both tickets. But because it was such a foregone conclusion that Josh Shapiro was going to be the gubernatorial guy for Democrats. But that that Senate thing, there there are like real differences, both in terms of. you know, philosophy, um, but then also that style or whatever. I mean, you know, Fetterman uh, has sort of perfected this sort of social media sort of viral kind of thing that sort of works for him. He's obviously had 
years of of uh, very favorable national press that he's kind of built on or whatever. Um, you know, uh, raises money like you wouldn't believe. Um, Kenyatta has been, as I, I agree with you, running a, a good campaign in a lot of ways. The one area where he's weak is one kind of Achilles heel is with the fundraising. And you've got, you know, Connor Lamb in between there, who's who's proven that unlike Fetterman, he can actually get endorsements from people in his party and some of the traditional base. But unlike Kenyatta, he can actually, you know, does a decent job of of raising money as well. So it's just going to be kind of fascinating to see where that where Democrats go, um, because I really do think that that's going to be just sort of such an interesting test about where this party goes. We've been talking so much about Allegheny County and the trends there. And, and those are clear to me those because they're so obvious. Even I can't miss them. But when you look kind of on a statewide level, you know, where is this party headed? It's, you know, it's, it's just a fascinating. I think that's going to be like the great test case for that on how we go now on how, on how we cover and how Democrats run uh, statewide races and, and what is it? Yeah, that could show a huge shift because, um, you know, as the, as the demographics are already shifting a lot, you just have a, you have a lot more Democrats in the Southeastern part of the state than you used to. And it used to be a heavily Southwestern party. And, um, now it's not. And and so with Arkusha's exit, I mean, Kenyatta could really surprise a lot of people, but he does need to learn how to raise a little bit more money because, you know, uh, you know, Fetterman's got just so much cash and, you know, Lamb has the ability to tap into a lot of cash as well. Um, but he he's already punched way above his weight. And and again, it could just be one of those surprises. And I think the other thing I'm, I'm kind of excited about is, uh, you know, Pittsburgh congressional delegation is going to be totally different uh you know we yeah you, you know you have doyle retiring you have summer lee running you have jerry dickinson running you have steve Irwin running already but then you also have candidates that are going to be running for that suburban pittsburgh seat whatever it's gonna whatever the lines are going to be like connor lambs um or you sorry current seat and um we might be in for a surprise there too we might just have a totally different makeup than what we're used to whereas connor is kind of that like He's kind of that like, oh, like Western Pennsylvania, like, you know, he's a Marine. He, uh, you know, he shoots a gun. He um, he's, he's a little bit more moderate on on, on those kind of uh, issues. Um, but we could see a totally different makeup. And I think that's really you know, the one place where I kind of find a little bit of difference is on the fundraising, the importance of of raising money or, quote unquote, learning to raise money. I think there's going to be so much money in this race. Most of it's spent on the Republican side. That kind of finding your way among advertising on television isn't going to be the way to distinguish yourself. And, you know, Fetterman, who's run on multiple times, he has some work to do, right? So I think he's going to need every dollar that he has to find a break in. I think the one point that was really keen is the, is the, is the importance of the Southeast, particularly Philadelphia. Philadelphia will be about 40% of the primary electorate in the Democratic primary. So as much as we talk about all states, as we talk about what's going on here and there, it's like recognizing that Malcolm Kenyatta is a state representative in North Philadelphia, has an incredible reputation there, has a legacy there. His grandfather was an activist of the highest order in Philadelphia. So there's a lot of things that money can't buy that Malcolm has, and there's a lot of things money can't buy that John Fetterman doesn't have, and that Connor Lamb, quite frankly, doesn't have, right? And I think it's also important to recognize, you know, as we're kind of rounding out what these personalities look like, that Connor, Congressman Lamb and, and Representative Kenyatta are essentially the same age. 
So when we talk about this new upswing of young talent kind of coming into Pennsylvania and having opportunities to lead, this is the epicenter of that. You have respectively, I think, a 34-year-old running against a 36-year-old to be a United States senator, and that's pretty special. And that's something that's, again, unique to Pennsylvania in this election. Millennials. Shut up. Right. I'm storming <laughs> off the set now. <laughs> we got Ossoff, you know, we got Ossoff, and now we're going to well, you know, storm <laughs> off because we are at the end of our show. It's been a lovely hour with you gentlemen. Um, thank Absolutely. you so much for here. sharing your thoughts about this local election yes. cycle. We hope to have you back again yeah, uh, when we talk about the general. Thank you. And thanks again to our interpreters. It was fantastic watching all work. I really appreciate I've it. I've never had an interpreter. It me makes either. Me feel really, yeah, like, I'm a time. superstar, now, you know, Dr. Oz <laughs> level, you know. <laughs> Reach for the stars. So thank you all so much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. And uh, that was uh, Ryan Dito. David Dix and Chris Potter joining us talking about a lot of different issues politically here in Pennsylvania, but uh, most importantly, talking about this 19th and 24th legislative districts. Those elections will be held on April 5th. And just one thing I wanted wanted to add before I, I pass it over to you to, to close this out as is for those who missed it last night, I was joined by Latasha Mays, a candidate for the 24th, on a last night's Sunday night sit-down. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be making an announcement about who will be joining us this Sunday, it, and it, but it won't run at 7 p.m. this Sunday because that would be like sometime in the first quarter of the Super Bowl. So I think we're going to move up. The, it will be the Sunday afternoon sit-down. The Super Bowl Sunday sit-down afternoon something. We'll come up, we'll come up with something, but, but it's not going to be the Sunday night sit-down on Super Bowl Sunday. But yeah, uh, really great conversation. Again, want to thank David, Ryan, and Chris. But back to you, Miracle, to close us out on another great power hour. Yes, I hope everyone got a lot of great information about the upcoming local elections. It's just a reminder to make sure you're registered to vote as you've changed your address, you've changed your last name, may have not voted in a few years. Just make sure you're, you go online to vote.pa.gov and double check your voter registration and update your voter registration. David did mention this in his conversation about us being a part of the transition team. Kahari, Jasiri, and I are sit on various committees with the mayoral transition team, and they are asking for community input and feedback about um, recommendations that you would like to see this mayoral team implement. So if you look in the chat, if you go to gainytransition.com, please go and click on the community survey and, and take that survey. You, one, must hit submit at the very end of the survey for it to be counted. And two, understand that this is an anonymous submission, but because this is tech involved, your IP address will be temporarily stored. So please do not put any threats into the community survey. Please do not be violent within the community survey because you don't want anyone to get um in trouble. But if you have ideas about what you would like this mayoral staff to look like, this mayoral team to implement, please make sure you take the community survey. And also, we know a few weeks ago, Peter Spencer was murdered in a little hour outside of the city of Pittsburgh. And his family and friends have been really advocating for a fair and just investigation and so there is a petition that we have in the chat that we are going to ask people to sign on to. You know, 
uh, just making sure that people understand that those of us who knew Peter or who were friends and loved ones of Peter's friends and loved ones are not going to uh, stop calling for justice. So please make sure you um, sign the petition. Next to last thing, make sure you like and subscribe uh, on our YouTube channel. We have a lot of great content coming for you in the coming weeks, and we do want to make sure that we have the latest and best information for you. So make sure you subscribe, uh, make sure you uh, donate to 100 Power if you like the programming that you see, or like I said, trying to bring you so much more in 2022. And with that, I hope you have a great evening. This week, we do have a full um, house for you tomorrow for Tuesday at um, what Black Pittsburgh needs to know. Tuesday at two o'clock, we're talking with mental health providers. For Wednesday, we have this week in white supremacy. And again, Ask a Black Doctor is going to be in person, so it will not be screened. So with that, please make sure uh, you're staying warm, you're staying safe, and have a great evening. Good night. Thank <music> you.